Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Everybody, thank you for joining us today. This is a topic that is probably one of Aaron's biggest passions, and um, I feel kind of a proud mama bear, even though I'm not old enough to be your mother, but still, I feel that way because... You presented on this topic at Skisha, absolutely crushed it and did a phenomenal job infusing evidence into play. So um, I thought we would kind of start with a, a quick brief overview of what, what pediatric feeding disorder is. And then I get to sit in the questionnaire seat and you're the answer. So sound good? Sure. Do you want to start with PFD though? Yes. 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 <laughs> okay. So then let me, let me shrink this one down. Okay. So again, for those of y'all that aren't familiar with what PFD stands for, it stands for the pediatric feeding disorder and dog also feels very passionate about this. And yes. we have the pediatric feeding disorder ICD 10 classification because of the immensity of work that feeding matters, the international nonprofit has done on our behalf. So 
Pediatric feeding disorder is made up of four components, psychosocial component, a medical component, a feeding skill, kind of how I view like what is their developmental age, as well as nutrition, how they're reaching their metabolic caloric needs. Now, when we're looking at the PFD diagnosis, if you have a PFD diagnosis, you may have one of these areas, you may have all of these areas. And sorry, the Mr. Dawson got home and realized he couldn't go through the back door because y'all we're live, baby. <laughs> but that's why if you say you have esophageal dysphagia, you may have a diagnosis of esophageal or the patient may have a diagnosis of esophageal dysphagia, but it may not fit within the wheelhouse of a PFD if it's managed, treated, and fine. So that is kind of a piece. Also, I do have to, as always, Aaron and I joyfully volunteer for Feeding Matters. Uh, please make sure that you check out their conference uh, next month. We're just shy of a month away. I'll be presenting for their pre-conference on Wednesday, where we're putting the focus on the caregiver and why empowering the caregiver is critical for the interprofessional practice team. But Aaron and I will be there in spades. But there it is. That's what pediatric feeding disorder is in a nutshell. And honestly, that's why, because when it's clearly defined in the four domains, that's why we cannot be a silo practitioner. Because if we're acting in isolation as a speech pathologist only, we're not doing due justice because nutrition is outside of our scope of practice that falls on the RD. Feeding skill may fall on the role of the occupational therapist in conjunction with that of the speech language pathologist. And the medical component can be driven by GI, by ENT, by a pulmonologist, an endocrinologist. I mean, the list is a plenty. So this definition clearly highlights why we work as a team. So yes, I'm on a roll today, love. I know. <laughs> this is what happens when you do four miles and get Botox in your forehead on the same day. Go team. <laughs> also, I'm trying to, I'm hopefully not bruised up there today, but yeah. No, so. it looks good. I bled a little right here. We're okay. Life, middle age. Aaron, I ran four miles and I had to have two knee braces as well as an ankle brace. And I felt like a little old lady, but it's okay. Got to protect your knees. Yes. Cause I don't want any replacements yet. So yeah. Okay. All right. So tell us the backstory on how you wanted to get into play and embrace play for feeding. So Michelle really, I mean, you got me going with the medical complexities of feeding and the value of diving deep and finding the underlying etiologies and making sure that we're working with the family as a whole and making sure that things are functional. And like, as one of both of our students says, like, once you get the feeding bug, like bug, you can't, like, it just, it bites you and you can't stop. Like you just, you will always want to be a part of. And I also have fallen in love with floor time and play, like what play-based therapy is. And I think people's definitions of what play-based therapy are very different, which is also why my lecture focuses on the definition of play, because we, I think we all speak very different languages when it comes to that. And I started having a lot of patients who I was working with for language and utilizing floor time strategies while also working with feeding mm -hmm. and uh, the way that those integrated so well in my mind just made so much sense. And for those of you that don't know what floor time is, it's wonderful and a philosophy for therapy on a, almost all disciplines. So we all speak the same language. It focuses on the DIR floor time is what I am certified in. And it works with development, individual differences in relationships. So the importance of relationship and connection. And you develop that through play because children learn through play. That's what our bodies, that's what our brains are meant to do. That's why we have such a prolonged period of adolescence because we are supposed to make mistakes and learn and play and figure out how people respond to one thing versus another. And so 
as I saw the value of building this relationship and I would work with so many autistic children and I was like, I cannot, I'm working on them engaging with me and wanting to connect with me so we can build language, which I'm a very big proponent of neurodiversity affirming movement and making sure that we're honoring all forms of communication and none of them are bad. They're just different and they're just as valuable, but we live in a world where it's not set up for people that are neurodivergent as much as it's set up for people that are neurotypical. And so we have to, we're trying, like, that's something that we all have to acknowledge, but realizing that, and then realizing all the components of feeding, how you have to sit at the table, you're meant to engage. We talk during mealtime. We have a multitude of a sensory experience when we sit at the table. And so the value of helping a child feel connected while they're at mealtime just made like that can completely change your feeding therapy. But sometimes you have to start away from the table and you have to start in play and bring food into play as opposed to, which I'm, I'm not against, like there, there's also value to being at the table and maybe bringing some sort of play, but the play isn't as organic as oftentimes when you're bringing like a game to the table, the, the play has so many levels to it. And I don't have the six hours that I will hopefully have eventually to like go through all of this. So stay tuned for that, that will be coming, but Cola, we don't, this isn't the time, but it, but it just, it's made so much sense. And then diving into the sensory system and the diff, the sensory differences that most of our autistic children and neurodivergent children that we work with have, I've also dove into that. And that is like just as much of a puzzle as the medical side of feeding is a puzzle. Yes, And so but play allows you to work on all of those things. I mean, yes, referrals, med- like that medical portion of that I get, but from the comfortability, anxiety, if a, if a child feels connected and you build a relationship with them, there's so, you can just do so much more with that. It's trust. You have established trust, trust which okay. is my number one core value in my life. So we had to do that in my first job, like list our core values and trust was number one. Like I can't, number two and three, I like not as strong with, but trust is number one. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to address the awkward elephant in the room that I'm sure a fair few of you are thinking, um, and not saying, okay, so here's the deal. There are organizations and healthcare systems, one here adjacent to us, by, I don't know, a couple hundred miles to our West and one up in the Northeast that guarantees results within their feeding clinic. They engage in a ABA approach style to feeding and the caregivers have shown videos and reports that they are engaging in force feeding. So if a child has emesis, we have to clean it up. The food falls out of our mouth. If it, um, they, they make, they push them to do these things. I have concerns and Aaron, this is another thing that you have a certification in, but I have concerns that we are creating trauma incidents and violating that child's circle of safety for engaging with healthcare practitioners. I have picked up children that have gone there for therapy. Aaron has picked up children that have gone there for therapy and we have to, um, it's almost like you got to step back to rebuild the trust and play is where we can build trust. So, yeah, but I would challenge you that if you're engaging in one of that, um, approaches to listen to what the child is saying, even if they're not verbal yet, read their body language and read their stress And then as Aaron would say, read the room, reassess, and then lead with play, Um, but do it with actually understanding what play is. Okay. So talk to us about what, what texts do you have recommendations on? 
Well, and one thing I will say is that we all know that children need to have intrinsic motivation, Mm -hmm. especially with feeding to Mm -hmm. want, like there may be successes that are shorter term um, from some of these programs, but if that child doesn't have the motivation to eat or the desire to eat, then you're not going to get very far. And from an overall trauma-informed, you know, mental health standpoint, it goes back to birth and the relationship at birth. And that is why you get children who have these difficulties with understanding what their body wants because they were tube fed, because they had such stressful feeding experiences when they were a child, because when you were a child, you cry and caregiver feeds you, whether it be breast or bottle, and you learn, oh, I communicate this and they feed me and I feel better. Mm -hmm. But then what happens when I don't feel better when I eat or what happens when I'm not, I'm getting fed through a tube and I'm not building the understanding of my body because, and these are all things that, that have to happen, but these are things that we have to acknowledge and we have to understand. And I always told my families in the NICU, I teach you to communicate and listen to your child more so than I'm teaching you to how to feed them. Yes. Because I will tell my families too, of patients who were starting to introduce food, there is just as much value to a session where that child refuses and you honor it as yes. there to a session where they eat the food. Because yes. every moment that you listen to them telling you they don't want it, they trust you in that relationship more. And there's so much value to that. So- okay. Erin, when she speaks about trauma, I, I just have to explain that we, we may learn about counseling and briefly about trauma in grad school. For those of us that are domestic abuse survivors from once upon a time, you get a crash course in all things trauma, and then hopefully a humdinger of a counselor to help you learn. However, that is cursory information at best. Um, Aaron has pursued advanced coursework and certification more than just like a night's worth of courses, but like you have, what is the certification that you have? Well, I'm TBRI trained. I'm not a TBRI provider. That's like a a very intensive, like weeks long course. I would love to get that, but it's like $5,000. So, um, but it's, it was still like 40 something hours, 30 something hours. I mean, it was a, um, intense training. Yes. Yeah. But we, that's, that's something that we need to highlight is that when you're talking, when she, so when she's coming at it and she's talking about floor time and play-based therapy, and she's talking about from a trauma informed therapist, these are, you're coming at it with advanced skill set. So, and in truth, I don't have those trainings because soccer season was wicked freaking expensive this year because everybody outgrew all the things. So mommy money went there. But one day I want to take those courses. <laughs> so, okay. So t- um, w- wait, can you tell us the Where name? Where do you want to start? Um, the name of the yes. trauma class. Can you tell us the name of the trauma class? Um, TBRI, it's trust-based relational intervention. A relationship okay. intervention. Okay. Now, um, um, can you start with a couple of books? Um, Karen Purvis. Karen Purvis is the woman who created that course mm-hmm. and she is phenomenal. And she is, she's done a lot of research. Um, and one thing I like to, cause I, I mean, I, Michelle and I used to, and we don't get as much, which is great, but it still happens. Um, get the whole, oh, well, this therapist brings their bag of tricks. Like, why don't you bring a bag? They always play with those toys. The new thing I get is, oh, it looks like you're just playing with them. And I say, I'm really glad that it looks like that because I'm doing a really great job because there are so many things that I'm doing. And I almost think that because I enjoy it so much, they think even more so that it's just play. But the whole point of play is for it to be joyful. So if you are playing with a child and you're not, there are days, but like when I get in a session and like we're cooking, as they say, like I have so much fun. Like it's just, I mean, it should be mutual joy. That's how you know you're doing a great job. But she says that there's a quote I use in my lecture. It says play and therapy allows a child to enhance learning readiness, attention span, and problem solving skills. In fact, according to research by Dr. Karen Purvis, scientists have discovered that it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain, unless it is done in play, in which case it only takes 10 to 20 repetitions. So 
I just, I'm sorry. I have this one little guy at the, at the clinic that I got consulted on and they were like, he cannot bring a cup to his face. He cannot, he will not do it. And I was like, play cheers with him. And one of the girls looked at me like I was bonkers. So cheers for St. Patrick's day. This is, this is just my coffee mug. But, and I was like, we had the little reflow cup and we did cheers and he made it a game. And then he picked up his little cup and then just like bottoms up. And because it was a controlled volume and he didn't like drown himself, it just, you could see that happening. Mm-hmm. And the beauty well, of that yeah. is, yeah. And we're learning more and more that autistic children don't always learn best through repetitions. So Yes. This, I mean, that's also something to consider that repeating the same thing over and over again may not be as beneficial. I, repetition is valuable doing the same thing over and over again, because from a praxis standpoint, if a child does the same play and they know the motor plan of it, you're going to get more language from it or more, maybe stronger communication because there's not as much cognitive load from the motor plan. But that's kind of a side note. I get a lot of my information from the book play by Stuart Brown, MD. It's wonderful. It really talks about what play is, um, what, why we play so much. The biggest thing that I, I mean, I took so much from it and, and it made so much sense. Um, but play really is supposed to be purposeless. It's supposed to be it's pre-conscious and it's pre-verbal so anyone can play. It allows you to it allows you to see what a child can do and there's no wrong way to play. So if you're telling a child how to play, it's not play. And if they're not having fun, it's not play. So just kind of remember that because when you think about play like they mean play. They're supposed to be you're supposed to lose a bit of your sense of self. You're supposed to improvise. There's a desire for it to continue. Like when you're at a concert and you don't want to leave because you're having so much fun, like everyone's play is different for some people running is play. And for some people it's not because they're doing it for the purpose of like running a marathon, which I mean, it it just depends on what your purpose is, but it taught, they talk a lot about how engineers who used to to play Legos when they were younger, like their job a little bit more because it becomes some sense of play. I just play for my job because I was like a very people pleasing child. So I didn't really do what I wanted to do. So now as an adult, like playing with my patients is my play fully. And I haven't finished this book, but my phenomenal colleague, uh, Karen, who we've had on the podcast before to talk about collaboration between OT and PT taught I started the interpersonal neurobiology of play by Teresa A. Kessley, which is a little bit of a, um, I would start with the first book because this one's a little bit of a deeper dive and a little more intense, um, floor time. We read engaging autism in that course, which is a great book. I would say that they're reading some of it. If, within the neurodiversity affirming movement, it, you will read things where you're like, this isn't really, this hasn't, um, it didn't age well, but we talk a lot about in floor time, how, you know, we believe that Stanley Greenspan would have developed with the times. So you just Mm -hmm. have to, I mean, this was written a while back. So we learn when you know better, you do better. The floor time course is phenomenal. That's something that I would recommend it's expensive and you have to record yourself doing therapy and you have to be critiqued by a, not kindly um critiqued by other people which is it's actually super interesting to watch yourself do therapy and see the things that you do because you have to be ready and to truly do true play based therapy you have to be ready to look inward because you have to understand where your triggers are, your own sensory system, how how you are regulated. Because if if you're not regulated, you're not going to help co-regulate that child. And if you're not regulated, that child is going to know. And that's going to lessen your connection. Like you have to really understand yourself and you have to be able to look back in a session and say, mm, I, and that's okay. We all are 
human. Like we were not always going to be regulated. It's not always going to be our best session, but to be able to look back and be like, well, you know what? Like that was a, he, we built our relationship. We, you know, he learned that I was going to be there. Even if I'm not fully, fully engaged, I was there to support him. I did the best I could. I think you have to be learned to be emotionally intelligent because you're going to have to look at your own individual differences. If that makes sense. Let me. So case in point, because Aaron's been mentoring me and I don't even know if she realizes that you've been mentoring me, but we talk like, I don't know, almost every single morning on the way to work. And mm-hmm. and she starts talking about her cases and the patients HIPAA compliant, but like what they're doing, what they're not doing, blah, blah, blah. So I have this baby girl that comes into the clinic. We'll call her Petunia. And um, she was never referred. It is the South. I'm going to call a spade a spade. When you are a minority child in rural South Carolina, you do not always receive the same referral timelines and or services that your um, upper middle class white peers get. So there it is. So we are coming down the pipeline on three and her only functional form of communication is screaming at the top of her lungs, literally around the clock and throwing things. And she's about 45 pounds at three. I mean, we are dense and, um, yo, your girl sprained her ankle <laughs> like a month ago at Skisha, like for Skisha. And so it's been a slow go the last month, but her favorite thing to do is to run. And I have always noticed self-awareness and emotional intelligence that my oldest goose, he is auditory defensive. He's the kid that engineer play with Legos, the whole nine yards. But if it's loud noises or overwhelmed, he complains of a headache. He blanches, turns red, covers his ears and cannot handle it. Right. But I did not realize until I started working with Petunia that I am the same, that volume, that pitch, that screech it, I would in my head close my eyes and I realize, or close my ears, but I realized externally I was closing my eyes and shutting down to this child, but I was trying to protect and regulate myself because it was so much. So I had the opportunity to watch one of the phenomenal OTs work with her. And all she did for an hour was pick her up and throw her onto padded things and fluffy things and the tramp. I mean, like all over the place, it was, it was proprioception. It was vestibular. It was input. Then they put a weighted cooling vest because she likes ice water. Baby girl runs hot. I mean, hot, like physically hot to the touch all the time. And she doesn't have a fever. And we have round tables every Wednesday and we troubleshoot cases. And, um, and I brought this up. I was like, I don't understand why, why is she always warm? And they were explaining that basically her body's in fight or flight all the time. And because of that, like it elevates like everything. And this was, yes, 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 yes. And, and over the course of the last month, well, I'm learning about her because y'all, you are not going to go in that first day and just know these babies. Right. But while I'm learning about her and I'm learning about her family dynamics, I'm building trust with the mom. Mom started bringing in videos of what she's doing at home, praise reports, because yes, bring me your worry, but bring me your praise. What are we celebrating this week? And she sung the vows to happy birthday to like a sibling's birthday, right? But her play is running full force at me across the therapy room, me picking her up and y'all, I am not physically fit and throwing her on the crash pad. And then we go dunk our hands in ice water and make a righteous mess in ice water. And I have to bring changes of clothes because we're soaked and it's cold and it's frozen, but she is making progress because I've learned how to meet her needs because Aaron's been mentoring me and, um, my dear, thank you. It is. She started, she's saying thank you. And like imitating also, she says, thank you. Kind of like her, like the way her mama says, thank you. And that cracks me up because it's got the same twang. Well, and what I will say is that our children who have been through trauma 
And mm-hmm. I would encourage you, it's a tough read, but I would encourage you to look into the polyvagal theory by Dr. Porges, um, just for an understanding, I might link an article that we talked about in our floor time course, but from a speech standpoint, if you feel unsafe, you listen for loud sounds or deep, lower sounds frequency wise, because that's what danger sounds like Mm -hmm. are these like, you know, booms, crashes, firework, like that. So if a child is, if a child is constantly in fight or flight, they're constantly listening for those sounds because that's what our body is trained mm-hmm. to do. And where are our speech sounds, specifically where our speech therapist sounds, because I will just say, we do not always need to be up here. Please stop talking to your patients in the highest pitch. It is not I functional. Okay. No, drop it. It is not functional. Also, don't tell them they're okay when they're not okay. That's like Thank my- you. Sorry, that's why I said that. (laughs) It's they're not, they're not okay. And you don't know what their sensory system is telling them. And if you go to I when I am having a panic attack and someone tells me you're okay, I want to punch them. So that's all I'm gonna say. But for our patients that are always in fight or flight, they're not picking up on those speech sounds. So if a child does not feel safe, they are not going to hear your language. And from a feeding standpoint, if a child does not feel safe, they're not going to feel hungry ever because your whole gastro system shuts down. And also your ability to pick up on any cues in your own body and your interoception shuts down. So helping it. And, and in the TBRI course, they talk a lot about felt safety. So felt safety you may know that the child is safe. You may know that nothing will happen to them. You may know that you are doing everything to keep them safe, but if they don't feel safe for whatever reason, whether it's their body telling them that something's unsafe because they can't modulate the environment, it doesn't matter because they're, it's what they're, you have to listen to them. And so that's just really important to think about. And we have to, I go into sessions assuming that there's some sort of trauma. I would rather treat a child assuming that they have some sort of trauma in their life than assuming that they don't. And most of the time when we get a child for feeding, there is some sort of trauma. Like there just is of traumas or a series of trauma with food. And I'll explain it to my families too. A lot of times how it's a hard conversation to have, but this child has been through negative experiences and it's really heartbreaking when the parent was force feeding without knowing or force feeding because that's the only means of, of nutrition that the child had. And it's not their fault, but explain to them, we've developed these neural pathways that have told this child that feeding is unsafe. And now we have to build back positive neural pathways, but it takes a really, really long time And you may not see the progress right away because it may just be them building trust, but still not making any changes with their diet. And when Michelle talks about food age, I use this a lot with parents because I have a lot of autistic children who I'm working with in play. And so maybe we're working on regulation, which as I say, SLPs, need to know how to work on regulation because you can't do anything if you're not regulated and you can't just say, give them to the OT, they'll regulate them. And then we'll work on our session. It doesn't work like that. It's a thousand percent in our scope of practice. May working on regulation. We may be working on engagement and sustaining engagement and like two-way communication, which can be a smile. It can be a laugh. It can be a touch of the leg. Like I honor any and all forms of that communication. So this child is working on engaging, but we're, and we're working on play and their play may be lining toys up, which I don't use that as a negative at all. I don't know why I picked that example because I know it's in the DSM five. It may be throwing things. It may be whatever they want. This is how they want to engage. And there's so many reasons why they may be playing this way is a child. I use an example of, um, a child that will, the toys, he only wants them flat on the ground. So is it that they're flat because he wants to look at them that way? Is it that they're flat because the praxis of lining them up and standing them up is too much? I don't know. We're going to figure it out. But you need to understand that child's play so that you can understand how to play with them with feeding. 
So when Michelle talks about food age, I have a lot of kids who didn't engage in messy play because either they didn't have the feeding experience or they had a really bad allergy or the like they would only eat because it was fed to them in a spoon because their body didn't really like it, but they got used to it and it was compliance and, and that's fine for what the parent needed. But we do need to engage in that messy play, even if this child yes. is much older. Yes. And we have Liza and Tony Ann, and I can't remember their last names, but we have them on the podcast coming up to talk about the importance mm-hmm. of messy play. And they are both floor time certified and it's phenomenal. I think it's in, we'll, we'll let you know, but they talk a lot about the value of this and why we need to do messy play at that time. But messy play may look different for a child that's older. I will tell you, I warn parents, it is going to get very messy because messy play with a six month old is them kind of messing on the tray. Messy play with a five-year-old may look like whipped cream is all over your cabinets and your floor and the child is sitting on the counter and you just have to, to tell the mom that you love them and remind them that they love you also. But that's a child who likes to throw things and is engaging in messy play. So like, that's what we did was we threw whipped cream and then it got in our hands and then we kind of put it on our face and then we put some toys in it. But like, that was an integration of understanding where he was from a play standpoint and understanding where he was from a needing to engage with food standpoint. But there's so much value to knowing all of that. And there's so much value to understanding how much they're willing to engage. Um, Because I believe that feeding therapy can very easily turn behavioral, especially with our autistic children, because of the, the difficulties that they have a lot of times with that connection component. And, but we also have to understand that they are connecting and engaging in a way that we may not understand. So I presume competence, um, but to sit at a meal and eat and engage with people in the way that is expected of them in quotes, like that requires a lot. I just kind of rambled a little bit, but oh, that's okay. It was, um, it, 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 I'm grateful for the insight because goose and bear were trying to get away with murder. Even though my husband's upstairs, they were trying to get away with murder down here. It's Tony Ann Loftus and Liza, Liza, I'm going to butcher this love, Liza Bernabio. And they are on April 12th. It comes out as a webinar. So it'll come out on a podcast, I think on April 13th. And they're specifically talking about messy play within the schools, because that's what they did was they engaged in messy play in the schools. Okay. So we say messy play. Here's how, here's how messy play looks for me in a couple of different group sessions and one-on-one sessions. I have, I have the joy of doing a group AAC class or I don't want to say class therapy session on Wednesday afternoons. It's like my favorite day of the week because there's two OTs. There was myself. There's my SLP grad student, Ariel. You're doing amazing. Also, Ariel graduates in a year. I'm plugging for the Ariel. And each one of us has one patient. So there's two OT patients and then the, my one speech patient, right? And we've got courtesy of Talk to Me Technologies. Thank you. We have several LAMP communication apps on like we go tens like throughout the room as well as a low-tech communication board on the wall with like a playground themed vocabulary there on the wall so what they do because you want to get low that's sorry that's what um our director irene says she's like remember these little ones need to get low they need to feel the low so piggybacking on what you said earlier having the low fundamental frequencies but we're taking it back to when they're in the womb and putting it to rhythmic music. So a lot of times in the background of our sessions, we have, I don't know, it's it sounds like chanting music. I'm torn between like drums or tribal or monks or a monastery. Dylan uses like the African drums because he's yes. from Africa. Yes, yes, yes. It sounds like that, but it's got one of those Tibetan prayer bowls mixed in periodically. So we have that playing in the background. We have tunnels that they're climbing through where we're narrating what's going on when we're playing with their communication devices. And then there's me perched up on top of this 
I don't know, it's like a trapeze thing. And there I am sitting up on top with a plate of whatever and or a couple plates of whatever. Sometimes it's ketchup and that's always messy and dangerous to get down with and another device. And these little ones are climbing through and then they're coming up and we're touching, kissing, we're licking, we're embedding SOS, or we're just looking and acknowledging that it's there. And one little guy comes up and he just smacks it aggressively with the spoon and he goes, yes. And then he jumps off onto a trampoline and it's this... it's a menagerie of things that's happening. And on the back end of the room, there's always another ice bucket or a soap bubble bucket. And we're literally, it's, it's play, but it's playing with a purpose of meeting their regulation needs for each individual child in the group. And then we just happen to have food embedded in a fun, stress-free way. There's no, it's a, Hey, here it is. And then Shell's going to do it. Shell's turn. And then if we want to, we want to, but I'm not like forcing them to. And Mm -hmm. I can tell when a little one's having a bad day or I suspect something has happened earlier in the day at school when they come in and they go, no, thank you. And I'm like, red flags are going off. Like what has happened? What new trauma has happened? Like that all of a sudden last week we were loving this. And then today it's Sorry, for those of you that are listening and not seeing, like I flipped my hand out so that it was palm out and they were covering their face. And I was like, Ooh, what's going on, Bubsies? What happened? No, thank you, Shell. No, thank you. Okay, got it. Got it on the first iteration. Jump, ready? Three, two, one, blast off. And then jump onto the trampoline and go on to the next fun activity. But that's one way that I embed play in is I engage in IPP and do it with my OTs. And pull Mm -hmm. in and make sure that our play is meeting their regulation. Is that how I would phrase that? Erin, pick me apart, woman. Well, yeah, it's helping them regulate by meeting their sensory needs, Mm -hmm. which I have. And I also think it's important to, I think a really important thing with families is to know what their goals are, but also help them understand that their picture of what mealtime is is going to look like may not be what it looks like. Based off um, and, and respecting that. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of our, for a lot of our children that have a pediatric feeding disorder who have hypersensitivity to taste and smell and texture, you use your re- resources of their other sensory systems to help regulate them. Because that heightened hypersensitivity in one sensory system can be by giving them whether it's deep pressure or the music of the auditory system can help kind of regulate that because they're going to go to fight or flight if you don't give them the support to work through that. And there's nothing wrong with it. I was talking, I was in a floor time course and we were talking about cute. Like I got, I got thinking about cues because we communicate via our eyes, our hands, our tone, our, our shoulders, all of these nonverbals are very valuable to the affect of the communication, which affect and emotion is how we understand shared meaning, because you can say the same phrase in a different way. And it means completely different things. And so, but in speech, like in school, I mean, I don't think I was the only one that was taught. Like you're like the cues are so important. Pull away cues. We want them to do this with less cues, like max cueing. I get from like a PT standpoint from, but from like a language standpoint, why it is cruel to take away those cues. You want a kid to understand language and you're going to take away your, your, I, I, if someone told me that I couldn't use my hands to talk, I would have a very big problem. And so like, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me why we're taking away cues of, I mean, that's just where I struggle a little bit. And in that same way, like there are going to be children who always need the support of certain sensory input to be able to get through these meals because they're always going to be hypersensitive to it. And there are things that we can work on to help with that. Um, I, Karen, um, who was on our podcast, we talked about a patient who I see who is 
the epitome of a sensory seeker and OTs will tell you like, you think you have a sensory seeker, but they might just be really hyposensitive. But this child is a sensory seeker, does not feel pain, headbutts, always running around, wants to ride, wants to push the tractor because he needs the input of pushing. But then he also likes the vibration of how the wheels be on the ground. Then he's also moving. So he's getting like his head is moving and he's getting vestibular. And this child just like, and so we're now seeking that orally because we're also hyposensitive orally, which will pack food a lot of times, which can also be a sign of esophageal issues. So don't just assume that it's sensory. Um, and Karen suggested like taking foods and making it in ice form and then taking another hot food, like giving a hot food and transitioning between those because that can help discriminate. And as you get better at that in one sensory system, sometimes it can impact other sensory systems. So there are ways that, I mean, that's what OTs learn more about than we do and we should learn more about. It's okay if a child is going to need some more of that support, like that, that's okay, but we need to figure out how best to support them. Um, and that can be done in play. And the thing about play is like, there are going to be times where you push a kid a little bit in the wrong direction and they don't want to go there and you learn and you regroup. But because yes. it's in play, the ability to um, rebuild from that breakdown is a little bit easier because you're, you can recover um, from that. It's um, the episode with Karen, y'all, is episode 160, a functional pediatric how-to guide and collaboration between OT and SLP with Karen McWaters. And that came out September 3rd, 2021. So um casually almost like 20, 30 episodes ago. Um, yes. Okay. So when you were talking about regulation, one of the things that, um, I've noticed about with one of my new patients and he's new to me is that he has rules that he adheres to and how he engages with the world. They are very set. They are very structured and they are completely unspoken because <laughs> doing 14 AAC trials right now. And he is one of the um, head tracker AAC trials that is going on. Um, so I'm going to be writing a lot of reports. <laughs> in the next. I only work three and a half days and I still have that many. Yes. Okay. Mm. Anyhow, we were working on expanding his play. Brief PMH, the typical compliant, includes um, uh, ETOH and some heavy-duty um, illegal narcotics in utero, um, some birth trauma, a uh, little bit of prematurity, not too much. Um, but he loves beans. I mean, like dried beans, loves them, absolutely thrives in beans. We are significantly globally delayed. However, it's one of those kids that when they look you in the eyes, there's spark, there's light, there's passion, there's, yeah. there's depths in there that are waiting to just come out. Right. And, um, so we put him in conjunction with the OT, put him in a bucket of beans, you know, like the thing that you have like a storage bin and it slides under your bed. Like it's like shallow, but like rather long. So it fits his little frame. We put him in the beans and put him under the, on like a little mat, not under the bed, but like on a little mat. And he was thriving and playing and, and working with both hands. Even the one we have hemiparesis with like scooping the beans and even grabbing spoons to like, like rake the beans around. And we were like, Hey, this is great. Um, you know, we've been just trying to like expand some different types of purees um, and different flavors of purees. And so we were like, let's, let's try it now because, you know, he was bringing the spoon up. He was giving hunger cue signs, right? Um, yeah. It turns out one of his rules is I only eat in my high chair. I don't eat here. So the second we presented it, it was a complete meltdown. And we, all of us were like looking at each other, including caregiver. And we're like, Ooh, that did not have the outcome that we wanted. So we transitioned back to the table, got in our high chair with all the support that he likes on this court. And then he was excited and tried, um, 
I don't know what it was off the top of my head. It was one of the purees that like has um, like a blue top. So, I mean, I just don't remember what it was, but it was a different flavor. And we got like a couple of trials in with lip protrusion on a spoon. So huzzah for like engaging the core. But um, I was not prepared for missing that. And Mm -hmm. it did, it took a minute to recover. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, what we're learning too, is that a lot of children who, and it's, it's hard to know if they, um, aren't speaking, but a lot of our children who learn as just all language processors, part of it is they, it's not only that they're learning language in chunks, but they process life in more chunks. So for a child who, um, for some children, oh, I went to Alex's birthday party and there was a, a pink cake and then there was a clown that really scared me. So they understand that Alex's birthday party, that clown scared them. But for another child, they may go to a birthday party that had a pink cake and there was a clown that scared them. And now anything related to a birthday is scary because that's how they relate. Like you get these children and Dylan, who was on the podcast, talks a lot about this. You get these children who... um go to a bathroom and the, um, the hand dryer is scary. And so they, the hand dryer scares them. They get upset. They leave. Now they're scared of bathrooms. And so dad takes them to the mall. I mean, they have to go to the bathroom and dad says, don't worry the hand dryer. Let's go. It won't be scared. The hand dryer scared them. Now you hurt them, not the hand dryer Mm -hmm. because you took them into there and you didn't keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And it's not to like scare, but like, that's just, that's the only way they can process it sometimes because things are just in these larger chunks, um, which I, I do ha- see a lot of um, autistic children who do have much, mu- things are much more compartmentalized for that reason. But then you understand, you have to understand behind that. I also did read something that I'll find the link that like 17 to 18% of autistic children um, have OCD, which I see a lot of. Um, mm-hmm. And I pick up more of because I have OCD, but I thought that was really interesting. Like that, you know, when things have to be a certain way and if they're not that way, we have to circle back and we have to do it that way. Um, I unfortunately have to do that sometimes, but yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Dylan Hartley, episode 137, polyvagal theory and practical implications for therapy, February 23rd last year. Okay. Oh, that was a year ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is listening and tomorrow they want to start the shift and they want to start instead of forcing, let me rephrase that. Instead of placing the demand that the child has to come to the table and touch, kiss, lick in that order at a table. And I'm giving like a hypothetical, Mm -hmm. no better, do better. Yeah, Yeah. But like, also huge fan of SOS, not discrediting that at all. Please yeah, don't yeah. interpret that. But like, if we want to break away from like a structured program and engage more in play-based, where would you recommend that they start? One, read the resources, two, take the courses, but how do we start with tiny changes? Cause it's that one degree. Yeah. Two. I mean, I think you have to shift your perspective and the, the thing that I struggle with the most is, is um, explaining it to parents. So I try to be very proactive because it is a much slower process, but it's a much more valuable process. And the reason I say you should really understand, I mean, for so many reasons, I think that you should understand why you're doing what you're doing, but for so many reasons, the more information I gain, the better I can explain to parents why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's where floor time really made so much sense for me because I was kind of doing that type of therapy already because it just made sense. Mm -hmm. But by having the research of floor time, it just, it gives you, it gave me a lot more evidence to, to come at parents and explain how this is beneficial. And so to shift your perspective, but also to find value in building that relationship. Nothing bothers me more when someone says like, Oh, I'll build rapport with them. And then, you know, we'll, we'll do therapy. And it's like, you should always be building a relationship 
and relationships change and relationships take time and someone coming in from the relationship can be bringing something that you may not know. Just like you said, that child coming in and having a, a hard day. What happened? You have to go into every relationship with your patient, knowing that things may change weekly and you have to honor that. And you cannot go into a session, assuming that that is the exact same child and regulatory status and Mm -hmm. whatever else, any of their individual differences that came last week, like you have to go into every session, honoring that child and what they're bringing to the table that day, because that changes. But what that involves is you not going into that session with a complete agenda. You going into that session, seeking to understand, honoring that child, seeking to understand. And, and I would observe more. The big thing they talk about in floor time is weight, watch wonder. I would spend less time assuming that, you know, this child, and I would spend more time observing what they're doing. I will sit there and I will watch child play for 10 minutes sometimes because I'm like, and then I'll do what they're doing because like, they'll look at something and I'll be like, you know what? Like I see, like, like I have a little, I have a kid who loves to squirt the squirt bottle and put it on the chalkboard because he, he has, his vision is amazing. And so he loves watching the water droplets. Yes. But like, I would, I mean, I wouldn't know that. And then I'll, I'll, I would just tr- connect with your, with your patients. Like you, there is so much value to building a relationship and it, when we're also have we're just like plugging all these episodes coming up, but um, Jesse Ginsburg, who is the sensory SLP, um, she she really helped me when she said that all a parent wants more than anything is to know that you love their child, because I used to feel that I'm a, a New Yorker, like I used to feel like showing your emotions too much was like not professional, but it is the type of therapist that I am. Like I love my patients so much and that's just who I am. And when you start to connect with your patients, even more so you find the value in their individual differences and they teach you a lot of things. Um, if you go in with too much of an agenda, you're not really going to learn much from them. And that makes me sad for the therapists that don't, because we have a lot to learn from our patients who are different than us because they see the world in a different way and it's pretty beautiful, but you just have to like take the time to listen and watch them and not assume that, you know, the answer you're just here to facilitate. If you're doing a good job, like it's not going to feel as much like you're having to like, like you're just facilitating their growth. It's it's, we shouldn't give ourselves too much credit, honestly. Yes. Okay. Um, Jesse comes on May 31st. I feel like I'm the agenda keeper for the night. Thank like, you. Yeah. Thank you. Th- y'all, I have more spreadsheets for the next several months than like, uh, we are recorded through June folks, and then we'll be back at it next month. But, um, dog is, dog is in agreement here. Um, okay. So, um, everybody that's listening, um, Aaron, can I, can I like toot your horn for two seconds? Cause I know that makes you uncomfortable. So I'm not going to ask permission. I'm sure. We do it for do. each other. Okay. So Aaron is in the process of, um, creating a, um, six hour course for speech therapy, pd.com all about the power of play, especially with emphasis on feeding. I think you're going to tease it pretty soon with a three hour course, right? Like, don't you have like a, th- sure. Yeah. We're, I'm holding, I'm, we're doing it. And, um, also, um, as soon as I adult long enough to get the necessary information to the one and only fabulous Yumi, um, (laughs) I'll go ahead and plug it here on, uh, Sunday, May 1st, we are going to host a pediatric feeding disorders course in the public schools. Um, I, I'm hoping Kristen is on, but, uh, this evening, so she can time in, Hey, Kristen, but, um, Kristen West, uh, uh, Dr. Rocky Garcia, um, our very dear friend, um, Angie Neal, who's the lead SLP with the South Carolina department of education and Aaron and I will be hosting it. And if memory, um, is correct, it will be absolutely nominal for those that are not members. I mean, like, um, basically not free, but bloody well close to free. And the purpose of this course is, um, 
we have worked the past year on um, putting pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders within the public schools for the state of South Carolina. So for three to 21, um, effective um, in just a couple of days, um, every child that has a pediatric feeding and swallowing disorder will have services covered by the state. But now our state's in dire needs of um, training. So we are going to work through um, regulations, policy, procedures, basic anatomy and physiology, um, uh, a how-to guide for implementing this into an IEP, as well as a um, troubleshoot. And then we're going to do live Q&A. So you're going to actually be able to pick some really great brains. Um, and we're opening this um, to everyone, not just for South Carolina, because um, as Aaron says, once you know better, you do better. So um, uh, we're bringing you brilliant minds to um, fill your cup um, and trying to make it as accessible to everyone as we possibly can. Uh, so tune in Sunday, May 1st. That's uh, that very first day of uh, Pediatric Feeding Disorders Awareness Month. Thank you, Feeding Matters. Huzzah. Um, and uh, that, that's kind of it. So please make sure you fill out your quiz. Um, check us out on First Bite Podcast on Instagram. Erin has a new professional podcast page. It's, what is it? Erin Forward SLP in, on Instagram? Yeah, SLP, something like that. Yes. Erin Forward SLP. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And um, she posts some of her favorite resources for um, floor time and for trauma-informed care and for um, why we should be working with our little ones the way that um, the way that she does that makes bonds and makes joy happen. So um, be sure to check them out. As always, check out Chasing the Swallow on Amazon, as well as log into Speech Therapy PD for 13.5 ASHA CEUs that are associated with it. What else am I supposed to say? This is the part that makes me uncomfortable. That's it, right? Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you, um, Cola Kitty, Dog, Goose, and Bear for making your individual appearances. We greatly appreciate it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Right. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures 
All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.